0: can stop what's coming. coming. That's true. You can never stop what's coming. No matter how many times someone will attempt to do that, you can never stop what's coming. Now, I don't know if my internet's going to work with me. I'm still having uh, issues in regards to... um, audio crackling in the middle. So I apologize in advance. It's just a couple of seconds. I cannot mitigate that on the device that I am. So I apologize. I'm really hoping that my internet does not block me again. My IP was actually, well, actually my Mac device was disabled from the other, from the internet. So I'm hoping that this time it'll work. Um, It is Uh, Quite fascinating. Yesterday, I uh, got a lot accomplished stuff that I can't talk about. I I do feel kind of, um, I mean, as adults, we're just like, why do kids complain, right? (laughs) So, you know, I can't leave my child all alone in another state. I mean, she's 15, so, and she's pretty reasonable, but I wouldn't do that. Not because I don't trust her. It's because, you know, something might happen, right? So, um Every time we have a, when we have a break, which we will definitely take, pop my head out and see that she's okay, because today I will spend time with her, um, because I kind of feel like, you know, it's so bad that I didn't, Um, so busy. I mean, we had dinner together yesterday, and I've just been working, so, um, you know, She's a little bit upset because where we're at, she was expecting sunshine and it's partly cloudy. Here's her weatherman forecast. <laughs> uh, so little Phoebe's drooping it out. Um, but I, I think we're going to have fun uh, driving to other places rather than fly, right? Uh, no need to get into those airports. <laughs> Jeez. It's, it's, it's just a glorified flying bus and they make it such a big deal too. On the other hand, I met a lot of Hunter's friends yesterday. <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. Uh, so, where do what is going on today is the question. Now, I got a call/slash text um, from Patrick, who's at an event. And I wanted to share that with you. And it's really not working out for me right now. Hold on. See, did I. I didn't do that today. Give me a second, could have sworn I did though. I need to send it to myself. There we go, via another device. There we go. And I want to play a sound bite. Oh, I can actually play the whole five minutes for you. Um, let's see, so you guys can see it, not just hear it. It's on Patrick's uh, Facebook. Give me a second. Let me get it up. And for those of you that are listening on, um, on how, do, how am I going to make this bigger? When you're not logged in, it's like Facebook needs all your information, right? So I'm not giving Facebook all my information. <laughs> so here we go. For those of you that are listening to this in podcast, there's an event going on right now in Tampa, the Reopen America event, and Patrick Berge has been streaming from there. And I thought I could share that with you. So let's get this up. Here we go. All right. right, So um, make this bigger. All right. Here it is. Starting line.
1: So hold on. Finally, I. Hey, welcome everybody. What? Some people get. I'm live here, I'm actually with uh, Justin, he's supposed to be like my backup camera guy, but he's not doing a very, very good job, he just totally, well now he is, he just totally
2: missed uh, me with uh, Pastor Rodney and General Flynn, but we're going to let
3: him
1: slide on that. How's this for a view, folks? Tell me God doesn't exist, yet I'm standing right here. This cover,
2: it's going to be magnificent when it's done. Move on this this side. Side. my side, coffee's right over there in my drink. You okay. can grab that and
1: then we'll come right over to you guys. Look at his face. He's got the same thing.
2: PFC Virgie General Flynn. What's your name? PFC Virgie. Remember Shadowgate? You ever hear Shadowgate? Yeah. Very nice to meet you. It's
4: 1967.
1: It's actually twenty I was
0: born. So I uh, I spoke to Patrick and I was like, why did you reintroduce yourself? Uh, you and General Flynn have, you know more than likely work together that we can't talk about in other countries, which I know. And he kept repeating, he's like, well, I can't say. And I was like, okay. And then, uh, again in DC, but okay, whatever. That was super awkward, but you know, general Flynn has seen shadow gain. Everybody knows. Shadow gain. So I guess that was the sound bite, but it seems that there is high energy there. It's, um, lovely to see all the people there. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to see so many people together because it is important that, um, you know, and this coming from someone that helped create a way to perpetuate obfuscated truth or lies, Patrick Berg, you created software to disseminate lies, but you know what? The truth doesn't need software, doesn't need talking heads. It simply is. And it perpetuates on its own. Uh, and this is why it doesn't require bots. It doesn't require specific platform. It is everywhere and simply is. And I love that. Um, I really do. Uh, fun stories before we start today's show. So, uh, so there was a a breach ish ish, um, in my hotel room. Obviously I go everywhere with my stuff. So Phoebe hates it. I'm either wearing a backpack and I look like a round kid with braces and a backpack, or, you know, I've got computer hardware equipment (laughs) sticking out of my handbag and it's like, dude. okay, so true story. One day, um, this is like, I want to say a year ago. I, because when I moved to Ohio, I took nothing with me. Like I got rid of anything that had memories attached to it. Nothing. Like I started from like zero, like new underwear, (laughs) New bags, new shoes, right? I, nothing. Okay. And what I did bring with me, you know, I got rid of when I replaced, right? Like basic things. So, anyway, I was, it was just as COVID had just come on the market, right? And people were confused and nobody was going to stores because they were like freaking out. So, stores were doing incredible sales. So, here I am at Macy's and I went to go look for a jacket. Um, and I went to their, you know, like a uh, glass case where they have like their really extra, you know, girls, what case I'm talking about in the backstage section where they have like your, you know, YSL, your Gucci, your Roberto Cavalli, whatever. Right. Anyway. Um, so I go there and I'm in the market for a big handbag. Like all my handbags are like, they're massive. Okay. Cause I carry a lot of stuff with me. So I find a bag that was originally priced at like something crazy, like 5,000 and on sale it was like 1600. Uh, it, it was Roberto Cavalli, right? Guess how much I got it for? I, like I shamelessly, I say it $169.99. I actually took snapshots of it in brown and black and I sent it to obviously my my only, um, well, I have a couple woman friends. Oh my gosh. Um, I can't invest in both of these. Um, do you want one? <laughs> and, uh, that's the bag that, is, you know, looks super extra, right? But it has like, all it has is hard drives, right? Super bargain, right? Has hard drives. This is from a year ago. I'm talking a year ago, right? Hard drives. It has pens, it, you name it, it's in that bag. And let me tell you something. You can ask anyone that has ever worked with me in any official capacity. You can never find anything in that bag. That bag with, will, un, it's like it swallows things. It it totally makes things go away. So, speaking. So, <laughs> can't believe I'm going to say this. So, yesterday… I I ran into a couple of Hunter Biden's friends. So I needed to kind of just sit, you know, nonchalantly, you know, um, close by and have my good ear. And um, so I'm sitting (laughs) down nonchalantly and I'm pulling things out of my bag. um, (laughs) And what... can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. So what do I pull out of my bag? A Patrick star. I had gotten a Patrick star. Listen, I'm telling you, like I've emptied this bag so many times, never found it. Patrick star from SpongeBob. So I had gotten a Patrick star pencil, which had Patrick star at the top because I wanted to give it to Patrick Bergey. And I remember buying it. I could have sworn I bought it. I never found it. But I just realized that the bag has like sections and then under, underneath the sections is like this connecting thing that connects the whole bag. So it must have been under there. So there I am with a serious face, okay, and I'm just pretending to be busy. And I pull this pen. I feel a pen. And I'm like, I'm going to take it out. And I don't even pay attention that it's (laughs) Patrick Starr sitting on top of it. And I'm sitting there writing casually. Way to go. Pull attention. All the people at the table turn around to watch this lady all professionally <laughs> writing with a massive, okay, wait. And here's the funny part. Why did they turn around? Cause the Patrick star thing was like a crumple thing that you get for cats. And then it, so every time you write, it opens. So I didn't even note, I didn't even pay attention. I just felt pen and I'm like, great. I look like I'm writing. So there I am looking like I'm writing. And then this star uncrumples and starts going. Making those um Spongebob's laugh. Bah. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Earth, open up and swallow me. I could not believe, one, I found the pen a year later. Two, um, well, it wasn't a year later. Um, Yeah, it was a year Well, yeah, it is. Because it was for May that I was going to give it to him. So yeah, it was over a year. That pen has been in my bag, missing, in action. And it's not a tiny pen, okay? So... I just wanted to say that was a funny moment. And then, um, it was at that time that we realized that there was a a little bit of a breach in our room. So they moved me to a room that I asked for. And so when we moved into the room, um, the clock was set for October 12th. I didn't do it. It was there Tuesday, October 12th. And it's so weird because that's a very specific date. I didn't do it. Phoebe was like, <laughs> mom, I think we traveled in time. I was like, what? No, that's the right time. That's the time zone. She's like, no, l- look at the date. So that was interesting. Uh, so I thought I'd give you guys a bit of a chuckle on a gaffe, especially when you're tired, okay? That wouldn't have been me if I was on my game, but it had been officially yesterday, like, you know, 48 hours, like nonstop. Maybe I had an, an hour kind of nap on a plane. Um, but not really kind of nap because I had a lot of work to do. So, um, you know, that was me completely off the game. Uh, you know, other people forget keys, wallets. I pull out Patrick star talking pens that have been missing in action for over a year from the bottomless pit of a bag. Uh, so that was, um, that was, uh, pretty interesting. Like it was so bad that I couldn't even manage, uh, the distances of this body. Uh, I had hooked the bottom of my lip onto my braces and I tore it. So it looked like I got punched in the face or had half lip injections, right? <laughs> just half the mouth. So I looked busted up. Um, so it was one of those hot mess days, but you kind of just laugh at it because you're just like, yeah, looking back, I was such a hot mess, whatever. Who cares? I don't. Um, so I was really, really tired. I couldn't even believe like at night when I lay down, I just turned off. Apparently there was a fire alarm that went off. <laughs> no, I didn't hear. I guess I heard something cause I got up around six, but I went straight back to bed. Um, but there was a fire alarm that went off and they sent us an apology letter. We apologize for the fire alarm. <laughs> Phoebe and I were just like there was a fire alarm. So either one, the fire alarm wasn't working in our room or two, that's how dead tired I was. So um I I mean I expect Phoebe to not wake up from it because as a kid that kid could sleep through air raids, bombs, everything. Like nothing would bother her. So but for me, it was, <laughs> it was pretty weird. So yeah, that's how um that's how exhausted we were. But speaking of exhaustion America is exhausted. America is exhausted because of all the propaganda. Now we've um, talked about propaganda before. I've done a show on propaganda, but it's really important that we revisit that right now as uh, the uptick for it is happening, Uh, especially now that the president is starting his rallies and he's going to be in my state first, and it really sucks because I will be in Georgia at the time of his rally. So I'm pretty devastated because I wanted to be there with like, you know, glittering signs and whatnot with everyone in the mosh pit. Right. But it is what it is. Um, but propaganda is going to be ticked up like no other. So I thought we could go back to that account. You know, that I am a Patreon for them. They do some amazing work by pulling out historical archives um And I want us to revisit the whole thing, uh, which indicates World War II propaganda. Now, I know a lot of us realize that the mainstream media is filled with propaganda. This is all they're feeding us. But it's important to understand it completely. Understand it in the sense of who, what, when, where, and why. What is the end game? So I think revisiting this clip may indeed give you more insight when it starts to come to fruition, uh a lot more in your face. And it will be important that truth is propagated to mitigate it. Here we go. Let's take a look at this together and listen. Here we go.
1: America prepares. All America alters its pattern of life and work to meet the demand for protection. Industry is a double step to supply the sinews of safety. The armaments of war that an embattled world must have if democracy is to survive. Mechanical genius joins with the muscle of millions of men working to win for the ways of freedom. Freedom to think, to speak, to rise, live, and plan with one's fellow man. America's vast resources are harnessed to the job of being the world arsenal for this and other democracies. Its present day production of armaments is but a mere fraction of the great job that lies ahead. The flow of production is in and shipyards gains speed. Vessels of all types, carriers, merchantmen, submarines, slip off the waves in growing numbers. And the beat of feet sounds over the land. Feet intent on training, on growing fit for whatever destiny holds ahead. Heroes, everyone. Heroes by the million. Men who abandon abandoned home and vocations, that they may be ready to defend democracy if necessary. Sturdy of body, firm in spirit, seamen, marines, soldiers, and flyers. A huge civilian army joins in this great defense program. Rigid rough work this training. Actual combat is simulated. Conditions met and mastered. No problem that that may
0: arise will find these men. So what we're we're seeing right now is tremendous propaganda. Not a little bit, like insane amounts of propaganda right here. And you have to think, wow, so this is how they did it. They were telling people, hey, you want to be part of the, uh, I don't want to say in crowd you should join and be part of the civilian military and let's show you, ah, speaking of civilian military, as we know, our Karens, I wanted to tell you guys the the funniest Karen I've run into. So I get out of the airport. Okay. Karen, propaganda, Karen, Karens, Karens are necessary in order to execute these. So I think you're going to love this. So I finally get out of this airport that reminds me of Los Angeles's own country called an airport, right? Like LAX. I finally get out to it and I finally get to the destination where to pick up a rental car. Okay. Rental car. So the line is huge and I, and my eyes are rolling back. I've just walked like 20 miles to get there. (laughs) I need, um, to get myself out there because I want a cigarette. I've been traveling for hours and hours. I'm having a cigarette. So I, I walk out into the fresh air and out there there's trucks and, and, and cars. So there's this guy that can't even speak English, right? Sitting in some van that says rent the rent the van thing, whatever. It wasn't a U-Haul. It was something else. And, um, he sits there and he tells me that, uh, you know, he wanted, to he t- he tells me to stop smoking. This is a guy who can't speak English sitting in his car with a mask on. I went off on him. I went so off and I was like, dude, mind your business. Are you getting paid to tell people to not smoke here? What? Why are you in my face? Sit in your car with your stupid mask on. You can't even smell it. This is exactly what he did. And there were 10 other people out there. They all came in and said, mind your business. Why are you doing it? I was like, this is the problem with America. There's Karens like you. And this was a 50-year-old non-English speaking mask wearer in his truck, right? Telling me who's minding her own business, sitting right by a cop car, chit chatting with the local PD, having a cigarette. They're not saying anything, but the non-English speaking Karen with his mask on in the truck is. I just wanted to point that out. Now, The question that we should ask ourselves is why is this happening and how propaganda is being propagated and this is how they're using poverty as propaganda allow me to demonstrate here's this video. It's pretty awesome.
5: This photo is entitled Migrant Mother. It was taken in 1936 and has become an iconic image. I'm sure you've seen it before. It captures the concern of a mother, the weight of her children literally on her shoulders. It's held up as a beautiful image of humanity that catches real, almost heartbreaking emotion. And it's technically propaganda. This picture became famous because it perfectly captured what was going on in America at the time. The Great Depression and the Dust Bowl were devastating both businessman and farmer from coast to coast. So when this photo was published in newspapers around the country, Americans related. Florence Owens Thompson was 32 years old, a mother of seven, trying to make ends meet by picking vegetables in California at the time that this picture was taken. She was a reluctant symbol of poverty whose identity stayed hidden from the public for decades. Her picture was taken by this woman, Dorothea Lange, a famous photographer and journalist. Dorothea was sent to California by an unexpected patron of the arts, the United States government. In 1937, the U.S. Department of Agriculture created the Farm Security Administration, or FSA, to help farm workers with loans, training programs, health care, and more. The FSA also wanted to educate the world about the struggle of farmers and farm workers, and to explain why it was so important for the government to step in. So, they hired artists. Photographers and filmmakers were sent in to document the plight of all of these struggling Americans. They understood the power of photography, that the struggle in these images might create a new awareness, or, as one FSA leader said, introduce Americans to America. And the photographs that came from the FSA did change things. After Migrant Mother was published, extra food was sent to the camp where Florence was photographed, and there were longer-term impacts. The over 77,000 images produced over the life of the program helped to tell the story of an era, from southern sharecroppers to midwestern farmers to the migrants of the west, a story that may have been ignored if not for the hard work of so many men and women. So, yes, some do see this as propaganda. They'd say the United States was making sure people knew that they were playing the role of the hero in this desperate time. But that doesn't change the power of these images, the effect that they had, or the story of the people in them. After all, it's a story that still resonates today.
0: So, using poverty as propaganda, I mean, why not? People fall for anything because they stand for absolutely nothing. Someone even mentioned the clo- the global uh, warming thing with the polar bears. I mean, even Coca Cola embraced that, right, with their advertising. Uh, but uh, you know what was interesting? I found this really, really incredible. Uh, you know, clip. You want to hear who created this? CNBC. CNBC. Guys. We need to watch this. It talks about why democratic socialism is gaining popularity in the United States. What? 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 Wait! 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 wait, wait stop! What? Why would they make a analytical, totally breakdown of talking about democratic socialism and why? It's making its debut and so big in the United States. Think about it for a second. Who did I tell you did this? Yeah, that dude Mattos channel did this. This is a really big deal. This is a huge deal. Huh, you have to watch it to believe
4: in. Socialism used to be a really scary word in the United States. It helped fuel the Red Scare when Congress carried out massive witch hunts to weed out suspected American communists and traitors after each world war.
1: Our job as Americans and as Republicans is to dislodge the traitors from every place where they've been sent to do their traitorous work.
4: Until recently, though, socialism had been relegated to the sidelines of American politics, and it's taken on more of a positive connotation, thanks in large part to Bernie Sanders from Vermont.
2: When I talk about democratic socialism, I am talking about Medicare. When I talk about democratic socialism, I'm not looking at Venezuela. I'm not looking at Cuba. I'm looking at countries like Denmark
4: and Sweden. The 2016 presidential contender was a self-proclaimed democratic socialist who tapped into a huge and angry voting bloc of the country's disillusioned youth. Party,
2: party, party. Financing college for all students in America really resonates with me.
4: Workers' rights. Climate change. He's planting the seed. Closing the wage gap. He cares about um, black students on this campus. This is a
2: movement that's going to exist for many, many years to come.
4: Sanders made socialism cool. He also paved the way for the rise of other charismatic politicians like him. House Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had volunteered on the Sanders campaign before deciding to run for Congress herself. She was an overnight sensation after her unprecedented victory in 2018. Despite the fact that we were running against a 10-term incumbent, despite the fact that we didn't have the money, despite the fact that I'm working class, despite all those things, we won. AOC fervor has swept the country.
5: We are in a
2: moment where socialism is no longer a dirty word um, because people are affiliating it with those candidates who are already incredibly popular.
4: But this swell of popularity has also triggered new fervor
1: against socialism. Democrat lawmakers are now embracing socialism. They want to replace individual rights with total government domination.
4: So is this political zeitgeist that's upsetting the status quo a fad or the future of politics in America?
1: Tell me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like.
4: To understand democratic socialism in America, it's best to start with the basics. Capitalism, socialism, and communism exist along a sort of economic spectrum. At one end, the government has total control over the economy, and at the other, little to none. Socialism is somewhere in between the two It's a system where the government has nationalized most all major industries But unlike communism, property and resources aren't owned and controlled by the state Instead, the government redistributes the wealth to individuals in a way it deems fair and equitable Democratic socialism lies somewhere between socialism and capitalism Depending on whom you talk to For some, this system is pro-market Others want to abolish capitalism entirely But they do agree on more government control ensuring things like universal health care and tuition-free college funded through expanded taxes on corporations and the rich. Much like the kind of system that you see in Scandinavia or Iceland.
0: Sounds like socialism to me.
1: (laughs) Democratic socialism. Now, what's the
2: difference? Huge difference.
4: But to understand why the debate over socialism in the U.S. is so heated, you need to know a little history, too. Here's a crash course. Even before German radicals Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels released the Communist Manifesto in 1848, the ideals of socialism had already taken root in the United States. After Thomas Paine's famous writings helped drive patriots to war with the British, he soon took on a new cause, taxing wealthy landowners to help pay for a basic income for all citizens. Sound familiar? He didn't call it socialism, but it checked a lot of the boxes. Over the 19th century, these socialist principles incubated in labor unions and later flourished during the Industrial Revolution, when wealth was suddenly highly concentrated among an elite few in this gilded age. Capitalism became a common enemy for a population that felt left behind. In 1901, a few pro-socialist groups banded together to form the Socialist Party of America. Within a decade, socialist candidates began winning multiple local, state, and national level elections. By 1912, the party even ran a competitive candidate for president. But then came the First World War, the overthrow of imperialist Russia, and the rise of an oppressive communist Soviet Union the U.S. government cracked down on perceived disloyalty at home in what became known as the first Red Scare. There had
1: been nationwide raids, and the public seemed glad to have any type of radical brought to trial.
4: American socialism continued to decline in the 1920s. And in the aftermath of the Great Depression, President FDR's New Deal of the 1930s, which promoted huge public works projects and programs like Social Security, only further served to steal the party's thunder.
1: A rolling ball of economic thousands
4: of men and women every week. With the end of World War II and the fall of Nazi Germany leaving a huge power vacuum in Western Europe, the Democratic U.S. and its Western allies began a global multi-decade battle against the communist USSR and its satellite states. Being a socialist was suddenly as good as being a communist, which was synonymous with being an enemy of the state. Republican Senator Joe McCarthy led the infamous Second Red Scare of the 1950s. Reagan.
1: The man assigned this communist pledge to pledge to support the Communist Party.
4: It was a brutal and public witch hunt designed to identify anyone from communist sympathizers to secret Soviet agents. No one was free from scrutiny, not school teachers, artists, or journalists.
5: Have you no sense of decency, sir? Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. Let's, let's...
1: You have done enough.
4: Then the pendulum swung the other way. The 1960s saw the start of a multi-decade surge in left-wing politics. From the counterculture to civil rights and the anti-war movement, liberal politics became mainstream. But even with this resurgence of liberal ideas, socialism had faded to the background. Fast forward to 1989.
2: Uh, And we have a remarkable development here tonight at the Brandenburg Gate. On the other side, East Germans have now come to the wall, and many of them have been seen crawling up on the wall, being helped across by West Germans from this side.
4: Down came the Berlin Wall. Oh, and with it, at the end of the Cold War. The atrocities of autocratic communist states were on the world stage. And for a couple decades, the U.S. was happy to promote the win for democracy and capitalism, while socialism largely slipped out of the lexicon. But then came the 2008 financial crisis.
1: Lehman here is going bankrupt. Some of the biggest names in American business are tonight gone, along with a lot of money and a lot of jobs.
4: As millennials came into adulthood, the formative images seared into their minds weren't of the fall of the Berlin Wall, but of a financial meltdown.
0: The foreclosure rate in this area right now is over 400 percent.
5: It's a war out there. I mean, these people are losing homes every single day.
4: Yeah, people sleeping on the street, sleeping on bus shelters. Is that where I'm going to end up? Stories like these pushed the country to a breaking point. Public outrage poured into the streets. Occupy Occupy movements across the country demonized capitalism, blaming it for the country's widespread economic inequality. Burdened by student debt and a tough job market, for many millennials, it seemed the free market wasn't working. Many wanted radical reform, but it wasn't until Bernie Sanders ran for president that they found a bigger name for their cause. America's socialist movement was reborn. Sanders had effectively tapped into a fresh crop of socialists, even though his platform wasn't offering anything particularly different to what he had already been talking about for decades.
5: In our society,
1: theoretically a democratic society, you have a handful of people who control our economy. You have uh, maybe 2% of the population that owns one-third of the entire wealth of America, 80% of the stocks, 90% of the bonds. And these people have incredible power.
4: Nearly 40 years later,
0: Sanders' vision of a socialist America has finally gone mainstream. So I'm showing you this because you need to see what they are telling Americans, how they are convincing them. This is propaganda on steroids. They're exploiting causes. They're exploiting poverty. They're exploiting, They're pandering to the hearts of those that feel like they've been left behind. Everyone who was raised as a millennial, right, was told, hey, all you have to do is go to college. Then you get a job, and then you get a house, white picket fence, and everything's fine. Before that, there was the, you know, boomer gen- generation, which was you already have a job. There were so many jobs. It was the industrial revolution. So the millennials all thought. Hey, I go to college, I get a job, white picket fence. The new generation that started post, post 2002, that generation is being told, you don't really need college. It's stupid. You can learn everything online. You could just get yourself a job because the government will give it to you. You could be recruited into what you need because of your skills And the government will give it to you again, going back to the fading out, the notion of hard work and labor and loving what you do. That was in the thirties and fifties, which is what do I like to do? I like working on cars. I'm going to be a tinker guy. I'm going to open up my own shop. And we're seeing right now, there's a cognitive dissonance amongst the younger generations that are between the ages of 18 and 38 that are completely lost. And then you have the boomers who are still around that are saying, um, yeah, they're right. Because look at my kids, they were failure. My grandkids will do better. Forget college, just do something like X, Y, Z, get skills and just get recruited somewhere. So we have this huge attack on, on the working population. And why do I say that? Because it's always work and how you can support yourself that they exploit. At first it was, let's educate everyone. And that was a great notion, but then it just became cookie cutter. You must educate yourself. I mean, we've got kids with degrees that have gender studies. You're not qualified to do shit with that except for work at Starbucks. Okay. Don't complain. Cause you went and got a degree in that. If you're going to study languages, you better have a career in mind that you like to convey languages and work as an instructor at a university, or maybe get a PhD and get into the more anthropological sector of it if you're so passionate about it. But there's only so many jobs before they get filled out. Sociology has now become a master's in social work. Uh, you know, that's government oriented, Psychologists, counselors now can get licenses to give drugs to people that have problems. They've just completely wrecked the working market over the past 20 years. They've completely wrecked it. And so we are at a generation of working people that do not know what they want to do. I, I know this because I have a child in college who loves mathematics, loves, you know, uh, computing, uh, information, tech in general. And, you know, we had a real conversation and I'm sure many of you with your kids or your grandkids are having the same conversations. She was telling me, I I don't know what I want to do. I mean, I'm happy with numbers. Like I'm just thinking I'll just go work for a bank. I'm in the military now and I like my job. I love my job. Maybe I'll do that, but I don't want to become an officer because then that totally ruins the aspect of serving. She is able to see that. This is a problem that has been happening. And so what do we do to fix this? <laughs> Mitigate these kind of messages. Because while everyone's looking for stability, right, they will grab onto anything that speaks to them. Again, I, I've I've told my daughter she's graduating in December with her degree in math. It's a double major, mathematics and uh, chemistry, right? And you know, she, I was like, "Well, what do you want to do? You want to do like a, a masters in like cybersec, uh, coding? Like, what do you want to do?" Right? And she's like, "I I really don't want to." And and I tell her this. Don't listen to anybody. Don't even listen to me because I'll tell you, do this, this, this. Listen to what makes you happy. That doesn't feel like work. And, um, you need to just focus on what makes you happy. Don't focus on work. Don't let people tell you what you need to do. Focus on what you can do and say, I could see myself doing this for forever and not get bored. And the only way you do this is if you're happy. I mean, she speaks a few languages, right? Right. Uh, She's very, uh, you know, she has skills, (laughs) brain skills. She has them. And you know what she does as a part-time job? Seriously, she changes oil because she likes tinkering with machines, but she doesn't know what she wants to do. And that's the majority of the voting population right now. They don't know what to do. They don't. How do we fix that if we have major networks putting together things like this that are making them feel like maybe this is the answer? Maybe the answer is I'll just have someone assign me something and I'll just do my job. And then when I'm not working, I'll have fun because there's a lot of people that do that. Oh, just doing a job. And then when it hits Friday, they go out binge drinking, clubbing, you know, and then up oh, back to the grind. It shouldn't feel like that. And then on the other hand, it shouldn't be obsessive. Like I am, I'm obsessive. <laughs> I work all the time. Now, obviously it's a critical point, And I've been awaiting for this moment in time for a very long time, right? Having repeated it a few times and fallen flat on my face. Why? Because it was trusted to follow the notion of others that should know better. Sometimes you just trust your gut and then, you know, you find solutions. And that's one thing that we need to bring back down is no one's going to answer these problems for you. No one's going to fix this for you. We have kids. I remember when I was a kid, most kids knew by junior high where they wanted to go. And that was kind of forceful in the state of New York. Well, in New York city, let me speak for New York city. Cause that's the education system I went through. Obviously I didn't go through the traditional one because I was in a bunch of different programs. But the majority of them had to pick their specific uh, junior high school of preference. So in the 90s, what they had was they had schools that were specific. So there was uh, junior high schools and high schools, but you chose from junior high of arts, aerospace, information tech, uh, health careers, right? Now they have a few of those in high school in this day and age, but very few and far apart. So the problem that we have is that they destroyed the job market by confusing the people that are entering the job market into not being able to have that sense of stability. And stability can come from no one. Your direction in life can come from no one but you. The more you command it, the more you have it, right? There is no stability. There is no job security unless you are comfortable in the job that you are doing. And we have given society, well, they have given society a false sense of security. If you follow this path, you will be successful, period. Now, the only ones that are stable to give uh, the the highest merit of success are law school, medical school, dental school, and nursing school. Dental school, I would say, has the highest rate of suicide. So you really got to like looking into people's teeth, okay? And you got to be good at it. So all those four schools are the most successful in that you'll have something to do at some point, right? Uh, depending on how good you do everything else, all these other jobs, being a chef, a driver, uh, an athlete, an artist, video editor, graphics editor in general, uh, actor, actress, uh, uh, writer, uh, teacher, you know, All these things are not stable jobs. You know, back in the day, being a school teacher was stable, but now you will be preferred if you do teach America, if you agree to their socialist guidelines, if you um, say the right things. So it is no longer about just being a good teacher. Once again, it's all about liking what you do. And sometimes a lot of people choose a career that they think they like to do. Like I had a, a a friend of mine who's who's now a doctor who had started her career as a public health. She got her MPH, right? And she was super excited about it. But she always wanted more. You know, she wanted more than just a public health degree. And so, you know, there she is going back to school. I think she was she was in um in a class lower than me when I entered. She was an adult student like me, um, in her thirties. And, you know, she took that. I've had nurse friends that did the same things and then went to become physician assistants only to be unhappy again, because they should have went to medical school in the first place because that's what they wanted. Uh, because they, they aim low to make sure that they get there and didn't aim high to what they want to do. Right. Uh, you have to want to love what you are going to do. And I think this is a message that all of us can convey to the younger generations and, and our generations. If you're not happy, don't do it. And a lot of people will say that's unrealistic because I have to pay the bills. All right. Then while you're paying the bills, figure out how you're going to do what you're, what makes you happy. I got a message from someone. Uh, someone had sent me the most amazing hot sauce, which by the way, I gave one of those to Patrick Berge too, who thought it was bomb diggity, Right. And it was the most amazing hot sauce. And I thought to myself, wow, can't wait to see that on a shelf. And I got a message a little while ago and the person was like, you know, I got inspiration. I got a big ass order from a big ass company and I'm selling my hot sauce because I like hot sauce. And man, that hot sauce is so good. And I'm not a hot food type of person. Why? Person had culinary aspirations, uh, did great, but focused on already having it made, uh, I know this sounds more like jobs, 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 but that's, that's the core. This is why Trump won. And this is why they're bringing in Bernie. And this is why it's important. We watch the rest of this because then you can see it coming because you're going to have to mitigate that message going forward. Baskar Sankara was one of the early adopters when he launched the magazine Jacobin
4: in 2010. It was in theory, a pretty bad idea. Not only was print dying, Bosco's niche quarterly was going to target America's socialists before the country had actually started talking or caring about socialism again. But the 21-year-old college student followed his gut, and the gamble paid off. Jacobin struck a nerve, and its circulation took off.
2: Socialism in the U.S. has been a marginal force for many decades, so I think we're kind of inventing things from scratch now.
4: A 2018 Gallup poll showed the Democrats have a way more positive image of socialism than they do of capitalism.
2: If you look at Fortune 500 CEOs, these people have tremendous say over your lives, over what you consume, over how you work, over the future of our country. And they're subject to no democratic mandate. They're accountable to to no one but
4: their shareholders. And there's one group working to change that on the ground. The Democratic
0: Socialists. Okay, so listen to this carefully. They're claiming that the Democrats are, are are seeing that the CEOs are in control. And it's all about their interests. And the CEOs don't care about you, right? Look at Facebook, they say. Look at Google. Look at Microsoft. Look at all these things. Yet again, when you step back, who's the one promoting the Democrats? Think. It's the same companies that they're saying are the problem. It's the same companies that they're saying Democrats will fix. Democrat socialists will fix. Well, well how, there is no government right now. The only government you have are those corporations. And that isn't because of capitalism. It's because of the Democrats. Do you see how a message is skewed? Do you see how propaganda fits? Because if you're watching this, you're like, yeah, I agree with you, man. Cause I totally agree. Microsoft's in charge. Google's in charge. Twitter's in charge, Facebook's in charge, right? Oh, Coca-Cola's in charge, Walmart's in charge. They're all in charge. They're telling you what to think. They're force-feeding you their idea of what you should act like, and yet they're trying to align those companies with the Republican movement when it is those companies that conservatives are fighting because exactly that, because they have full and utter control. Remember, Twitter was invented by DARPA. Facebook was too. And they failed hard. Why did they fail? Why did they fail? Because there's people like you and me out there that are tipping it off. They're taking it off. They're, they're, they're in, they, you don't even need them. Like if Twitter didn't exist right now, nobody would care. Nobody uses Twitter anymore. If Facebook didn't exist, nobody would really care. Nobody would. They just find another mean to communicate that can be decentralized without all the spying, without all the sharing, with more comfort, and without the uh, invasion. See, you need to see this to understand them because it's, it's easy for us to yell and get upset, right? Over the left is being so crazy. But when they are bringing Bernie now, they're bringing him back. This is what you're going to have to fight. Pay attention. Because they've just did the flip. Remember how they did it? Claiming that the Republicans were racist. When they were the ones that owned slaves. They were the ones that were against giving freedom to anyone that wasn't their own. They, th- they were the ones that wanted to eradicate African babies with their abortions. They were the ones that wanted to do all this, but suddenly it's been charged to the Republican party because people don't bother to listen. And so look at what CNBC did now. They created a documentary that you're going to go to and you're going to watch. And those of you that are walking in there as a young disgruntled American that can't find a job, guess what? This is totally going to resonate. You're going to understand it and you're going to identify with it. Even though you know that it's Google that selected your president. It is Facebook, Twitter, you name it. They selected your president, right? They selected. <laughs> they definitely didn't select Trump because they banned him. So obviously they don't want the people's choice. They want theirs. But now they're telling people, those are the people that were fighting. Yet those are the people that are gonna be in control. I want you to pay attention, because this is coming, it's important. The House of America bills itself as the largest socialist organization in the
4: country. It has its own firebrand version of socialism, with some members who want to abolish the Senate and get rid of capitalism. It's been around since 1982, but it went from the fringe to the mainstream in 2015. DSA membership is up nearly tenfold since Bernie Sanders came onto the scene, and its politicians are winning races across the country at every level of government. The DSA has a huge presence in New York. Every borough has its own branch, and Brooklyn has three. We headed to one of their local meetups in Queens to see what they're really like when they meet behind closed doors and to get a feel for what socialist policy actually looks like at the grassroots level. Jackson Heights is one of the most diverse neighborhoods in America. It's also part of New York's 14th congressional district, which is currently represented by AOC. AOC is a card holding member, as is the politician you see here, New York State Senator Julia Salazar. The two women have a few big things in common. Salazar is 28 years old, a graduate of a top university, and a fresh face in American politics. As democratic socialists, we are acutely aware of the racial bias that is endemic in our criminal legal system. We're acutely aware of how that racial bias intersects with the criminalization of poverty. During our visit, Salazar was talking about criminal justice reform to help drum up support for fellow DSA member Tiffany Caban, a public defender running for Queens District Attorney.
0: Let's go knock some doors and make some change happen.
4: (laughs) We had the chance to canvass with some of Caban's supporters, like Ryan Bruckenthal, a New York teacher and veteran activist.
3: Our ideal version of America is one where every human being is given the things that they need to survive and thrive. Um, a place where people don't have to go bankrupt from having hospital bills, making sure that good-paying union jobs are provided for those who are looking for them, making sure that we have a new economy that is sustainable and can continue life on Earth as we know it.
4: The DA race is one of many political battles being waged by Democratic socialists intent on carving out a place for the DSA and mainstream American politics. Hi,
2: everyone. Welcome. This is the Lower Manhattan uh, branch of the DSA.
4: At another meetup of the DSA, this time across town in Manhattan's East Village, another chapter was planning its own offensive. This one centered on ensuring housing as a basic human right through an ambitious universal rent right control campaign.
3: So the universal rent right control platform is a
4: series of nine bills. And although they are not sort of like utopian socialism, they are by far the strongest uh, offensive use of the law to protect directors that we have virtually ever. Some of the room feared media exposure of their meeting could hurt the movement. One person raised a motion at the start of the meeting requesting that we leave. And we were ultimately asked to turn the cameras off for their strategy session, which goes to show just how sensitive this issue still is politically. But as the democratic socialist movement gains momentum and even real positions of power in the United States, some worry socialism in any form is a slippery slope.
1: Let's by all means have an argument about whether the United States should have a more progressive uh, tax policy. Let's by all means have an argument about whether the really broken system of healthcare in the United States, which is both the most expensive and the least efficient in the world, could be reformed. But let's not dignify socialism, because before you know it, you'll be letting real socialism in by the back door. And that's, that's just a disaster waiting to happen.
4: Some point to authoritarian leaders who promised the virtues of socialism, but led their people down a path of economic despair and limited freedoms. Now, critics of socialism would point to examples like Venezuela and the USSR where it hasn't played out well. What do you say to those critics? This speaks partly to the distinction between democratic socialism and socialism more broadly, that under democratic socialism, it's led by the people. There is accountability at every level, socialist governments throughout history, some of their problems have really been due to a lack of democracy and a socialism that really is driven by the grassroots and by the people. The socialism being promulgated by the DSA has somewhat lost the stigma, partly because it's dropped its Soviet context. It's also less controversial since modern-day America is already deeply rooted in policies once deemed socialist, from five-day work weeks to universal public education, Medicare, Social Security, and public welfare programs. But perhaps most importantly, some say socialism isn't as taboo as it used to be because people don't really care what you call it, so long as it results in a more equitable society. Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz says the policies tend to speak for themselves.
2: When AOC or Bernie Sanders lists the things that they're concerned about, everybody having health insurance and education to live up to their opportunity, a decent retirement access to a good mortgage or decent housing, access to a decent job. You ask people, do they want that? The answer is yes. The response among young people, if you call that socialist, we're socialist. If you call that progressive capitalist, we're progressive capitalist.
4: Whatever you name it, that's what we want. And so I think we shouldn't get hung up
1: over these particular words.
4: In practical terms, politicians like Bernie Sanders and AOC have a pretty ambitious wish list. Universal health care in the form of Medicare for all, a federal jobs guarantee and a higher minimum wage, mass unionization of the workforce, plus stronger protection for those unions, tuition for university, some form of a universal basic income, the dissolution of ICE, just to name a few. Other more controversial and contested measures like abolishing the prison system have also made it onto the legislative agendas of some Democratic socialists. Freshman Congresswoman AOC has already begun to aggressively push her socialist agenda on Capitol Hill. Just take the Green New Deal, designed to put a stop to the country's dependence on carbon-based energy. We are facing a national crisis. And if we do not ascend to that crisis, if we tell the American public that we are more willing to invest and bail out big banks than we are willing to invest in our farmers and our urban families, then I don't know what we're here doing. While details for the so-called Green New Deal are sparse, several of the 2020 presidential hopefuls are throwing their weight behind the plan. Then there's Sanders' Medicare for All bill that he formally introduced in 2017 after stumping for it in the 2016 election.
2: I am just very excited about the kind of support our Medicare for All legislation is receiving all across this country and right here in the United States Senate.
4: Bernie's single-payer national health insurance plan has garnered support from many Democrats vying for the party's bid in 2020. AOC and Sanders also back housing as a fundamental right, which is still the pretty radical concept in the U.S. Healthy ideas like these may be popular, but there's always that one big question: how do you pay for it? Ten-year estimates from nonpartisan and left-leaning groups show that these proposals could add up to a price tag of more than $42 trillion. And this number does not factor in the expected $11.4 trillion deficit over the next 10 years that's already anticipated under current law. It also doesn't include the Green New Deal, which Republican critics say could cost tens of trillions of dollars.
2: The plans proposed by Senator Sanders and AOC are not remotely affordable in the United States. Any one of them might look affordable in the abstract, but when you put them together, they add up. You're well over $42 trillion over 10 years. Uh, That would basically double the size of the federal government. If you're going to get socialism in America, you need substantially higher taxes, and not just on the rich, but on everybody else. Uh, If you go to Sweden or Norway or Finland, you'll realize that it's not just the rich paying 50-60% taxes, it's the middle class.
4: AOC has put forward one plan to cover part of that $42 trillion bill. She wants to raise the federal tax rate on incomes over $10 million to 70%. To put that into perspective, Sanders' 2016 presidential platform capped the top tax rate at 54.2%. Assuming no tax planning, AOC's proposal would bring in $700 billion over 10 years. Medicare for all is estimated to be the single biggest expense on the agenda, but it's also one of the policies that democratic socialists say will actually make money in the end.
2: Well, some of the measures, let's say for health insurance, in fact, I believe there'll be a net savings if you cut out some of the private insurance bureaucracies and some of the waste of this management in our current, current system. So I think Medicare for All, for example, would pay for itself and then some.
4: But critics argue the math doesn't work out for a couple different reasons.
2: That's not true at all. First, what Senator Sanders is proposing is extraordinarily larger than anything the private sector does, and it's actually more generous than what other countries do. You could basically get any medical procedure you want anytime, with no deductibles, no co-pays, full long-term care for seniors, nobody does that. Because nobody's figured out how to really create a tax that converts every dollar of private healthcare spending that doesn't bankrupt families and small businesses.
4: One major structural shift being proposed, totally erasing student debt. The College for All Act from Bernie Sanders would erase the student debt of 45 million Americans. He'd pay for that $1.6 trillion expense with a new tax on Wall Street transactions. But democratic socialism isn't just about advocating for these kinds of expansions of the social safety net. The movement is also pushing to give workers more power over corporations. Sanders wants to create more public ownership over corporate boards. Under the plan, corporations would have to do two big things. One, give workers a certain number of seats on its board of directors. And two, contribute stock to an employee-led fund that would pay out regular dividends to the company's workers. Democratic socialists also want to take on banks. In May 2019, Sanders and AOC called banks modern-day loan sharks and proposed a dramatic cut to credit card interest rates.
2: No bank in this country... Uh, should have credit card interest rates of over
4: 15%. We talk about payday lending. In New York, we worked very hard to outlaw payday lending. But what happens when everyday banks start to charge higher and higher interest rates? Essentially, your credit card becomes a payday loan.
0: All right. So what is the problem with that? What they're saying is right. Predatory loans, predatory interest rates. I know that. It exists. It totally exists. Ask me. It totally exists. I'm sure many of you have seen it. So what happens? So what happens? This is what happens. You're no longer allowed to bank because banks aren't allowed to do anything. I want you to think about it for a second. What do you mean predatory loaning uh, loans? Predatory loans? I mean, you signed it. You knew you were going to pay 400% interest rate. So the government's going to come and fix it? Nobody wants to lend you money because of money challenges that you've had. <laughs> I know. I've got a ton of stuff on my credit report and that kills me too. A ton. From having my identity used to uh, others' financial dealings on my thing. To So there's a lot of people in that predicament. What do you do? They exclude you from mainstream banking. This is how they control you. If they can do this, if they can regulate how money is put out, then that's the way it is, the government. Let's 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 talk about this. So you know how they keep saying that the credit agency companies are independent. They're private, right? They're not. See, the CEOs of all these boards, the CEOs of all these companies sit on all the boards that regulate our laws. I need you to take a look at what board seats The CEOs of these private companies that don't do anything but share information where they sit. So they're speaking to those that want to be pardoned for bad judgment, bad situations. You know, I would love a situation where someone's like, you know, it's not your fault. Let's fix this for you. There's laws that protect people that have undergone identity theft. It wasn't, um, what was it? 2011 there was a discussion about, you know, cybersecurity. Um, it was actually my little sister that was interviewed on CBS for it because she's a cybersecurity expert. And, you know, they were talking about how your social security number is no longer secret. It's not a problem. I mean, it definitely is not a secret. Anybody can use it and do whatever they want with it. It's sold on the black market 15 times over, so some person that just crossed the border can work. So this compromising of your social security number means that they need another level of security to identify you, right? This is how it is because they can't protect it. They won't protect it because apparently these private companies have access to your information that are private, right? This, but it's not just that. There was a story of this person who went to a hospital and, um, you know, had a problem with their foot. Uh, let's say the, the problem was, uh, ingrown toenail and they have health insurance and they go to get the procedure done and the claim is denied. Why? My insurance covers it. Yeah. Um, well, there's a claim on another insurance that you got your foot amputated so you can't get ingrown toenail service by the podiatrist because you don't have a foot because, you know, a claim was paid out for that amputation. Now, the person is standing in front of the person with both her feet saying, as you could see, I have two feet. So obviously there's a mistake. Do you know what they told the woman? Yeah, sorry, we can't help you. So I want you to think about that for a second. You're standing in front of the person saying, I'm not paying for it, right? Yet you have two feet and they're claiming, well, on these records, it says you only have one foot and the foot that you cut off is the one that we're doing the procedure on and they won't cover it. So how do you fix that? She's supposed to be protected. She's supposed to spend hours and countless days and nights. To try to get this information removed, which is never going to be ultimately removed. Never. Never. So what do you do? What do you do at that point? Ah, you fix it. You make sure banks and insurance companies don't do predatory things. You make sure they double check information. I'll tell you what. as an interpreter... On the private side, before I lost all my contracts, because you know I have to be canceled, I would interpret for big health organizations. There were illegal migrants that were speaking Greek, right? Illegal, meaning they overstayed their visa. So, under the law that the Supreme Court made, they can actually stay, but they were illegally in this nation. They were at the hospital getting services performed. And the person gave a name that's not theirs. Definitely not theirs. Name was not, and I'm just going to make one up, but it was not Annabelle, you know, Hernandez or whatever. It was just some other foreign name that wasn't her name. And, you know, they didn't provide a social security number, but the hospital tracked down a profile that matched it with the birthday and credited that surgery to that person with that date of birth. Now, obviously, as an interpreter, I am not allowed to interject, but I can file a report and say, I was interpreting on this call, and I believe that fraud was committed. Turns out I was called about a year and a half later uh, because the person's insurance that was used was investigating Uh, this, and I was on uh, an interpreter on the call person's insurance card that was charged spoke perfect English. Didn't need an interpreter, but the insurance was also billed for interpreter services. So they needed to speak to the interpreter. Obviously I didn't remember everything that was said, but I did remember that I did file the report and I did remember just how blatant it was because the person was asking in the language and I wasn't allowed to interpret that portion. Hey, find me, find me an ID. This is what goes on. Okay. So I say this again. So you understand the predicaments that people are in. So this woman who had her identity stolen with the feet, right? Let's say, and this woman that had her identity stolen again for some surgery she never had, they're going to love what they're saying. Yep. We need increased security. Let's go by DNA. Fingerprints, blood sample, iris scanning. So nobody can use my bank account. Nobody can use my health insurance. You see how it goes? Because we create the environment for illegal things to happen, right? Not we, the powers that be. They facilitate it. Oh, no, they don't. Yes, they do. There are government organizations that actually assist in illegal activities. And I'm going to tell you about a conversation I had before people knew who Andy Breitbart was, right? Back then in the, uh, you know, 2005 to 2010 era, news wires was how you would get your information, right? AP Reuters, right? Where they would be, uh, just putting out stories, And as we hit a conversation in regards to something that I was working on with, um, Andy Breitbart, uh, you know, I said, you know, you should create a news aggregation site because Breitbart is no longer that right after Andy left, it just became just a site. It's not really what he wanted, right? He wanted one site. Well, I guess I did too, because this is the, this is what we kicked around in the can, right? Right. We need a site that collects all the stories from around the world and puts them in one place. And each of those places will have people of expert. You've got a culture expert. He's going to be editing all the culture stories from around the world. You've got a science expert. He's going to be the editor of all the science stories around the world. News aggregation site. You just re-put out the stories that other people write uh, with your own little summary and then a link to that story, pretty much. That's what he wanted to do. And that's what he started. And do you know how he started it? So I don't know if a lot of you know. So what got him on the map, and you know what's funny? Um, oh, I don't even remember when that was done. But I think it was, it, was, it was after the ACORN scandal. Do you guys know about the ACORN scandal? Okay. ACORN was the Association of Community Organizations for Reform, right? It was an NGO, a nonprofit, basically. And, you know, it was always involved in, uh, voter registration, uh, you know, advocating for leftist bullshit, you know, doing things like that. Back then, this is how James O'Keefe came to the, to the surface. Back then, James O'Keefe, just a, a video editor, he went there under disguise, right? With, uh, a, a woman, a girl, right? Um... Giles was her name. Excellent. She's daughter of a pastor. You know, Hannah was her name. Anyway, so I remember Andy, you know, meeting up with me to, to, to show me those videos. He was like, oh my gosh, you were totally right. Because I had told him about all these things. This is why he was actually so receptive. No one would take James O'Keefe's videos. No one would report on it. Media Matters actually tried to bury it. They all tried to bury it. Do you know what he uncovered? He went there posing as pimp and prostitute and wanted to have this government-funded, you know, work with the IRS, did all this stuff, right? He wanted to help. He he went to ask them, right, <laughs> to help him create a business for underage prostitutes from El Salvador or Guatemala. I don't remember. I think it's El Salvador. (laughs) I remember when he called me and he said, oh my gosh, you were right. And I said, what? You told me that that thing down from, you know, that was happening with this, you know, organization where they did the voter registration and they were doing funny stuff. I still haven't found anything, but you won't believe it. There's this film guy. His name is James O'Keefe and the third. And I was like, oh, how (laughs) the third classy, I said. I remember that. That's exactly what I said. Classy, the third. And I was like, and, well, he went undercover and he recorded them trying to assist in setting up a minor prostitution rings, like with minors between the ages of like 12 and 16 or something. It was like, what he did. And, and he was like, damn, you were right. We need to be like undercover in these things. We need to be worse than you, Tori. (laughs) So we got together and, um, it was pretty incredible what I saw. He put it out on his site, the videos, all of it. And, It was so crazy that, you know, the census, U.S. census that was attached to them, using them for voter registration, they ended their contract. The IRS did. They ended their contract. Congress stopped funding them. (laughs) But see, that's what happened. See, they didn't get in touch with the people of Congress that were funding them and who pushed it to throw their asses in jail. Because that was only one of the things ACORN did. Now, ACORN is one of many organizations that do this. And why am I bringing this up? You know, Andy was a really smart guy and he knew when to take things and run with them. I remember um, when we first met, um, I I approached him under guys and he asked me a question. He said, do you have a card? And I was like, I don't have a card. Why don't you have a card? I'll just give you my number. Why don't you have a card? Because I wouldn't know what to put on it. That's exactly what I told him. I don't. I wouldn't know what to put on it. And <clears throat> he took that. Anytime someone would ask him for one, he'd be like, I don't know. What do you call me? I have to dig up. I'm pretty sure. I think it was the Washington Times. Shit. Or was it C-SPAN? Or um, oh, he was on TV. He said those exact I remember watching it and I was like, what? That's what's up. He was always on top on the pulse. Why? Because he knew where to get information from. He knew how to discern that. And the reason he knew how to do that was because he was able to trust his gut. He knew what was important. Obviously he's rolling over in his grave right now to see where Breitbart is. It stopped being the way it was, but This is what's necessary right now. The video you watch from NBC, that's going to be watched and promoted again and again by many on the left, many in the middle too, that will agree to be with the DSA, which is actually their army is Antifa. Their army is the Sunrise Movement. Their army is Rise, DC, Underground, Resist, you name it. This is just how big they are lying in wait for when Bernie comes back into the picture, which he just stepped in, it's very, very important that we understand how big of a hot mess this is gonna be. You think it's hot now, wait to the end of the summer when we reap some of what we've sown. And starting in October, it's gonna get nuts. It is gonna be so nuts. And you know, you think. You understand what happened between the last election and the selected president coming into power? You have no idea. There were people that were actually pushing a very plausible idea of just uh, getting the military involved and taking it over. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you out there would have been totally for it. Man, I was too. But before the elections, not after. And the reason that I state this is because there is a lot that you haven't seen, a lot of infiltration that has happened into the ranks of those that are supposed to be taking this home. I'm very glad and I am so grateful that the president of the United States, President Donald J. Trump, did not take the advice to use force, did not do it. Now, many of you are going to say, uh, this is, uh, you know, that's dumb. We could have gotten this over with. It could have been over. We would have had the military take control. No, 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 you can't. First of all, they would have done him in. He would have been in jail faster than you could, could blink. They would have taken our president. So it was the wrong time. And it wasn't the right time. And the thing is, this man totally loves his country. And even though I am one that is extremely impatient, I know I say this because I am impatient, no matter the patience that I've shown, right? I am quite patient. We were as a nation at the same point at at, at that, at that time. And, um, Every single time Andy would try to be that voice, he would always be stymied by titles and tiaras. It's very important that we the people uplift we the people. That we stop looking up to the titles and tiaras to assist us. They are nobody. They are only somebody because we said so. I said this to him so many times, you know why? Because his his mind. you know what he told me, right? When he had those videos from James O'Keefe, he said, I, you know, I can't show this. This guy's not someone important. You know, he didn't, he's not. And I was like, that's the point. He's going to be important. This is what he does. This is what he does well, right? He is going to be important. So never look at someone as, as unimportant because they're always important. Every single person, every single one of you. And, you know, I I had urged him back then, it's really important you give a voice to those that people don't want to give a voice to. It's really important you prop up people like James and others to ensure that their voices are prominent because in the end, it'll be every American voice. That's going to be heard. Now, didn't I tell you that they will not be able to silence us, that we will be everywhere and they will hear us. We will invade every single place we can and tell them Trump won. I told you that. Can you see that happening now? Can you see how it's randomly being done? I told you that was going to happen. We just need to pick up the pace right? I knew it was going to happen. We just need to pick up the pace because if I know, they know. And if they know, they're definitely mitigating overtime. So it's really important that we mitigate overtime. Bernie's coming. Bernie's coming is a danger. It is a very big danger. And we are seeing just how prominent this danger is becoming. He is a danger 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 this is why president trump said he's not someone he wanted to run against he was a danger okay they just thought they had more more control and they let him fall when he could have been there in and why because old guard new guard if you watch the american gods new gods old gods that's what happened Now, here is a quick reminder of propaganda so you can identify it better. It's a pretty sweet video, too. Here we go.
3: The word propaganda gets used a lot in criticism of media today over the last, well, 50 or 60 years, mostly in an incorrect or misapplied way, which is to say it gets used as criticism in itself rather than is a neutrally descriptive matter-of-fact term. From about the mid-20th to now 21st century, you mostly exclusively hear it applied in an accusatory fashion, i.e. this is propaganda, thus implying that the subject at hand both should not be propaganda and that propaganda itself is inherently negative. But for the majority of history, that wasn't always the case. Propaganda which broadly defined, I imagine, most people do correctly understand to mean some form of art, literature, performance, presentation, etc., usually but not exclusively an over-the-top bombastic variety, explicitly putting forth a one-sided, agenda-driven narrative of support for a political movement, ideology, belief system, whatever, you know, marketing, but to convince you to invest moral or philosophical commitment rather than money. In the United States and Europe, most people's concept of propaganda in its base, most obvious form usually means our collective cultural memory of patriotic morale-boosting advertising by both the Allies and Axis during World War II, mainly because the is our last time our culture generally remembers engaging in propaganda in the pure form, willingly and for the most part in full proud awareness that they were watching it and why. See, today we think of propaganda and being propagandized too as being interchangeable with gaslighting, subliminal advertising or brainwashing because the immediate post-war era begat the Madison Avenue era of mass media advertising and the rise of omnipresent pseudo-self-aware style of I'm affecting a self-conscious obvious smug tone in order to convey that we both know that this is an advertisement so that you'll feel I respect you even as I proceed to sell you something anyway therein. So as such, we imagine previous eras of message media consumers looking at earnest, unironic propagandist mythologizing of anything, really, as being simply less savvy than us, staring slack-jawed up at the bright lights and pretty colors and loud noises. The truth of the matter is, though, for the most part, Americans going to see wartime pick-me-ups like the Fighting Sullivans or Donald Duck in Defura's face in World War II or the Battleship Potemkin back in 1920s Russia or Germans going to see Triumph of the Will in the 30s, for that matter, they knew and enthusiastically expected going in that they would acquire, and this was going to preach to them. As it had for most of human history to that point, propaganda mostly meant pep rally. I'm already on the team, now charge me up and keep me cheering. But as noted a moment ago, post World War II 1950s brought modernism, postmodernism, and self referential irony, or at least a self flattering, I can tell you're a customer of discernment, sorer, madam, version thereof, into being the dominant tone of American media voice, which meant that earnest direct, you are the righteous good guys who backed the right side, and here's why propaganda appeal stopped holding cultural appeal the realms of juvenile fiction, sports, and specific performative rituals and religious holidays, you know, the 4th of July and parades. As such, the concept of propaganda in popular culture quickly became associated exclusively with foreign cultures that we knew still practiced it without irony, chiefly propaganda materials produced by the Soviet Union, in particular the specific aesthetics of the Department of Agitation and Propaganda, or Agitprop. You've seen this style, that's what it's called. And since the USSR and the Soviet bloc communism was the big boogeyman of the cold, Cold War, agitprop on their end, was seen as not simply old-fashioned and tacky, but inherently villainous, which had the side effect of rendering any attempt at direct tit for tat propaganda counter from the US side look well, if not equally villainous, at least more punisher than Captain America. And for the people actually tasked with quote-unquote fighting the Cold War on a non-guns and missiles front, that was a problem. From the perspective of US and democratic European intelligence operatives, the Soviet Union had a huge advantage in the soft power front of advancing their cause through the combination of agitprop in the mainstream popular arts because even under in Stalinism's increasingly oppressive shadow, Russia had a deep and long-standing connection to the grand traditions of respectable pan-European literature, theater, music, and cinema. It was only natural, for example, that the most powerful socialist country would dominate in an era when one of the sweeping art and literary trends was social and or socialist realism. The center of concern on the pro-democracy side, then, was that the emerging post-war main power and champion in the form of the United States was not seen by anyone as a serious player in those fields. Oh sure, American culture was popular, but Coca-Cola, Norman Rockwell, Superman, and the Mickey Mouse gang were not the cultural titans that were going to convince the generation of vibrant university-bound young minds of Europe, Asia, and Latin America whose allegiance was believed to likely decide the outcome of the 20th century whether to pledge Team Eagle or Team Bear. And of course, a communist country had the advantage of being being able to just order such state-mandated creative productions into being. Whereas the United States, where a generation later, Mr. Rogers was going to have to go to Washington and make Congress cry just to keep PBS on the air? Not so much. So, who who handled this? The CIA, as it turned out.
0: Yeah.
3: Once a closely guarded secret whispered and joked about in the halls of power, but now fairly well reported in books like Eric Bennett's The Workshops of Empire, Francis Stoner Saunders' Who Paid the Piper, the CIA, and the Cultural Cold War, and Joe Whitney's Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers, and several others, for a good long stretch, the hot part of the early Cold War. There was a veritable gold rush of CIA programs wherein middlemen and women with strong anti-Soviet ideals and or solid connections to the world of art, Literature and academia created false front operations, schmoozed billionaire donors who were really, really interested in keeping the United States from having a communist revolution of its own that would raise their taxes and generally busted their asses covertly to essentially create American cutting-edge art and high-end literary movements that also felt organically pro-Western liberal democracy and ideology, essentially out of thin air. And the thing is, It worked. In fact, this might have been the most successful thing the CIA did during the Cold War, all things considered. By now, most people have heard about the moral and tactical disasters involved with, like, attempted coups in Latin America and Cuba, getting involved with the Shah in Iran and Mujahideen in Afghanistan turning into the... Taliban. I mean, it's kind of a crappy record, to be honest, but, like, as art promoters, music agents, and... Creative writing teachers? Yeah, I mean, it it sounds like I'm joking because it's kind of funny, but they were actually really good at that. But okay, the agency's big success stories that we know of in this era of propaganda that wasn't were the Congress for Cultural Freedom and the Farfield Foundation. The CCF was a front organization operating in Europe and eventually the rest of the world that essentially allowed the CIA to funnel money and influence to dozens of different literary and art journals all over the continent to organize gallery shows, concerts, performances, and the like for American and Democratic European artists and performers. Was in order to show off the creative prowess of the quote unquote free world, this was largely how the music of Leonard Bernstein, George Gershwin, the plays of Lillian Hellman, Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams, Clifford Odette, John Steinbeck, the writings of Thurber, Alcott, Hemingway, Cousins, Sandberg, Faulkner, Wolf, and hundreds of others first found distribution outside the United States. Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Dizzy Gillespie were conscripted to personally tour as jazz ambassadors to demonstrate the uniquely American jazz form and U.S. racial progress. Many, indeed, most of those involved, never having been aware of any level of covert involvement in their endeavors. Now, the Farfield Foundation, on the other hand, is much closer to what people think of when they think spooky, vaguely sketchy, uncomfortable. Were they really allowed to do that without us knowing spycraft stuff? At least in the broad strokes, even if it was still mostly about money changing hands enough time before it gets to a place for there to be plausible deniability. Farfield was a way for the agency to pump money into American-made art and literature, which, rather than having a patriotic or pro-democracy message, at least did have an explicit pro-communist or Soviet helpful message. See, this was the radical proposition at the time they were working with. If people weren't going to buy into propaganda outright, you don't fund propaganda. You just fund everything that's not the other guy's propaganda. Farfield's two most lasting legacies were agency ally Paul Engel's long tenure as the director of the incredibly influential Iowa Writers Workshop, where he shaped it into a talent farm for Pulitzer-winning fiction writers and a national model for American creative writing courses, which many will contend is precisely why so much of the last 40 to 50 years of American popular fiction is so similar, and also adheres to a set of seemingly apolitical rules that nonetheless make writing a socialist or class-oriented story pretty difficult in context, like the maxim that good literature should place theme and metaphor in the subtext rather than the foreground text, leave interpretation largely to the reader, focus on, quote, sensations, not doctrines, experiences, not dogmas, memories, not philosophies, or, as you've more commonly heard it put, show, don't tell. Yeah, that's where that comes from, and that's why. It's also why this painting by Jackson Pollock is worth $200 million. Yeah, no, really, this is completely true. See, prior to and during World War II, the popular art scene in the United States was dominated by social realism. But especially once the Soviet Union and its satellites aggressively adopted the uniformity of socialist realist art and Soviet classical architecture as the official style of the Republic in the mid-1930s, abstract cubist and other non-realistic artists made their way westward and transformed Paris in New York into the core emergent art scenes for what became, among other things, modernism. I'm simplifying a lot of art history here because there's a lot of this. But the short version, the moment the CIA and the Farfield Foundation laid eyes on the work of Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, William de Kooning, etc., doing what was essentially the throwing paint around on the canvas version of freeform jazz and recognized that this was literally as direct and opposite to socialist realism as you were going to get, you know, since the Soviet model was all message, all form, all the time, and this was about formless abstraction of abstraction and was literally about nothing they said, yeah, we need to dump all the money on whatever this is. And that led to lavish placement of the suddenly-everywhere hot new style of art at the agency-connected billionaire Nelson Rockefeller's Museum of Modern Art in New York and soon touring in massive demand around Europe, carrying with it, as the unseen benefactors had surely hoped, the revolutionary new cultural zeitgeist of artistic and literary thought, one that said the true artist should be free of politics, messaging, Technology turned on and dropped out from the dreary philosophical wars of politicians and seeking higher truths and pure aesthetic forms. You know, a sort of ennui driven, intellectualized rejection of giving a shit, basically, that's generally thought to have effectively blunted the cultural tide of Soviet philosophy among the post war European left to some extent. Did undeniably get a ton of really interesting artwork and artists out there, regardless of why, and also undeniably bit the more conservative players among the CIA cold warriors who'd been nudging it all in the place right in the ass when it was re exported back to the United States as the beatniks, so, irony. Not a great plan. Given, you know, everything that followed after that. Oh, and also by the mid-60s, newspapers like the New York Times started to, you know, report on the CIA having done stuff like this, and they kind of had to, you know, stop, mostly. But, uh, yeah, all of that, uh, happened. What? And, uh, well, I know some of it may have seemed a bit not entirely in the typical big-picture wheelhouse, especially if you started watching mainly since the comeback. I hope some of you learned something weird and wild you didn't necessarily know before. And also, I know many of you are asking, so wait, does this kind of thing still happen? Yes, it does. And I'm going to tell you about some of it next time.
0: Awesome video, right? Great summary. Great telling the people exactly what's up. Now, one person asked, how does Bernie get installed? He already did. He was put as chair for, remember, the committee that he stood in for Biden's plan? Ah, Now, um... A lot of people are talking about the Chinese defector, about, uh, bringing in information about Hunter Biden's laptop. Now I have said this many, many times. There were many, many laptops and I have one aggregate, one master copy of everything. Copies here, copies there, copies everywhere. Copies here and there, copies everywhere. What was that? Was that a, that's a Dr. Seuss thing. Oops, he's been canceled. I shouldn't be doing that. Now, um, Emerald Robinson put a series of tweets out. I'm going to read to you, okay? So she says, so the head of the Chinese counter-intel efforts in America has defected to the USA. He's in the hands of the Defense Intelligence Agency right now. His name is Dong Jingwei. He's provided the DIA with contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. He has confirmed that a third of all Chinese students are U.S. spies. According to multiple media outlets, this high-level Chinese defector gave information to the DIA. One, financial records on U.S. government officials and business people who took money from the CCP. Ask me, I have what you need. Two, U.S. citizens who gave intel to China. I have that, too. Three, names of Chinese spies currently in the U.S. They all sound the same to me. Now, according to Town Hall and Red State, Dong has extremely embarrassing and damaging information about our intelligence community in the data that it has given the DIA probably the same data that you've been getting over the past few years on the internet. Now, I've said this many times before. It is only that when people can actually see the truth for themselves, will the people understand just how grandiose and how true this nature Uh, 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 this actual, the nature of the actual deception is right. I've said this before. We have to have many difficult conversations and confront many difficult truths. As I've said, hate me now, but love me later. People don't like the truth, especially when it hurts their pockets, right? Patriots. I mean, you know, what's funny is that big names that people look up to big names that people look up to have asked, who's Tori talking about? Who does she have the goods on? Let me make it simple for all of you listening. Every single fucking one of you. If I have all the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, if I've had almost everything everybody keeps drip, drip, dripping about for years, then you definitely know that I got you too. You're the easiest one, too, because you're so brazen about it. It's a difficult, 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 difficult truth. But they must stare you in the face. You know, again, reminding myself, I I was eating oysters. One of them was bad, actually. Dragos, my favorite. There's no other oyster that I will cook, that I will eat that's cooked, sorry, other than Dragos oysters. I've tried Oy- oysters Rockefeller Everywhere, right? Drago's is hands down the best damn oysters, Rockefeller, you will have in the world. I eat them everywhere to compare it just to that. And I'll like order two, right? Be like, it's for a taste. I usually send it back. No one can compare. Why? (laughs) Because it was the first time I had a sour, uh, an off oyster at Drago's. First time. It just, it was dead, right? When they, when they made it. And I remember spitting it out, like it wasn't a very pretty sight. And, um, you know, Andy looked at me and he's like, damn, man, I feel crazy just thinking that all this stuff is true. (laughs) It's like, damn, man, wait till you see the full truth. And I hope you're never on the receiving end. All of us need to understand it. That bad oyster represents what the truth is. And I said that to him. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was very (laughs) disgusting right now and (laughs) spit out a half-chewed thing all over the plate where everyone could see, but that is exactly how ugly the truth is when you see it. That is how ugly it is. It's that half-chewed oyster. I mean, you guys have always talked about popcorn time, right? (laughs) Time is now. You're going to see this Blow up like no other. It's already started. They're already fighting. And they've already entered Bernie. Too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. Too late. You may indeed stretch this out, what? mm, Till January. (laughs) But that's about it. Because you can't win. Now, the fact that it's a Chinese defector claiming to be in the hands of the DIA when they've had a defector. Sitting in Leavenworth since 2018, I kind of call bullshit on that, okay? I really call bullshit on that. When they can ask an American citizen that left the agency, that went to China and came back. I say, what about the Russian defectors? I mean, they got more. I mean, the Chinese have the blueprints. I mean, they've got the Cathay Pacific bank accounts, but so does everybody else, (laughs) If it's on the internet, it's in your hands if you want it. Now, I say this again. A lot of people, you know, don't think anything's going to happen. We're getting the short end of the stick. We're going to be persecuted and we are being persecuted. We are. We are. A million percent we are. But you know what? (laughs) How else would you see it? How else would you see it if you didn't receive some of that pain? How do you grow without growing pains? You don't. This is it. It's it's already started. And this is popcorn time. You said you wanted it. Now you're going to get it. This is popcorn time. This is where they can't hide. Huh? Pelosi. Huh? Carrie. Huh? We've got them all. Oh, then we've got them all. And this is why a post that I put out that so many people were upset and nah, n nah, nah, right. And I still get people talking shit. When people realize who my enemies are, that should tell you exactly who the fuck I am. Okay? When I've got an attorney general who's cousins with one of Epstein's biggest financiers, uh founded Nickelodeon and Oxygen Network, right? She's his cousin. Running one of the biggest Native American. You know, human trafficking networks. Well, he doesn't run it. He oversees it. I mean, that's the state, right? Coming after me. Nobody reads cases. See, that's the problem. Nobody reads anymore. Nobody reads. Nobody reads anymore. You look at headlines and little posts that little bitches put out. Don't listen to her. This, have you read the case? Nope. I was actually quite... um, moved by seeing people from the state of North Dakota that actually, um, got my case. They actually got the tangible case and that's how they found out that it's being reopened because now he wants to sue me for costs for taking him to the Supreme Court, which is great. I haven't been served yet, but that's great. When I get served, that'll be fun. Um, And they paid like $300 for just like a small portion. It was a stack of documents, a stack. And what they found in there was like, oh my God, none of this should be public record. None of it. They made it public record that I had cancer. They made it public, guys. Where's my HIPAA? Who put it there? They made it public. They made public documents that were false. False. There was someone trolling on there. If that was true, I would have been locked up, you idiot. False. Whatever they found on the internet from whatever somebody created. False. Information was put out there. They were like, this is your site. No, it's fucking not. Prove it. Well, we can't. You need to. I don't need to. Show me that that's mine. Oh, you can't provide that? No, I can't because it's not mine. Show me that it's mine. And they just look at you like crickets, but they still file shit like that. Anything they want, they file anything. So now you're going to see a barrage of Hunter stuff come out. Some of it true. Some of it is going to be fabricated. Like, listen carefully. Some of it that will come out will be fabricated. Why? Why? Because they don't want you to see the damaging things. This is why journalists didn't have the whole thing. This is why, mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we're talking, they won't be able to walk out on the street. So, on that note, I'm going to wish you guys a wonderful, wonderful evening. I'm going to go hang out with my child before I travel to another destination tomorrow to work on all these things. In the meantime, I want you to remember what propaganda is. Be careful who you follow. And if it doesn't resonate with your gut, trust it. Trust it always. That should be your guiding light. God bless everyone.
1: on the soul right on the soul into the size ball into the while throw like a zombie that a born and not sure run alone Riders on the soul there's a killer on the road His brain is swimming like a toe. Say good on holiday. Let your children play. If you give this man a ride, sweet, fun money will die.